Now, we've been looking at uh, this entire chapter over the last several uh, weeks and with a bit of a break in between that time. And we looked at this, this passage under the heading, these four headings, uh, the character of Job. And we saw that Job, uh, in, in the book of Job, is, is declared to have a fourfold uh, character that, that, that God even himself declares about Job, that Job was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he turned away from evil. And so that was the fourfold testimony concerning this man, Job. Uh, God boasted of Job and his character and how, how Job worshipped him and served him. And yet we saw that uh, the, the second portion of this, uh, the servant of Job, the character of Job is maligned. And so Jer- Job's character is maligned in verses 6 through 12. And Satan maligns Job char- Job's character in saying that, Job only serves God because of what God has done for him and because he has placed the hedge of protection around all that he has done for Job and all that he has given to Job. And then we saw in verses 13 through 19 that Job's character is tested through the testing of Satan. Satan's testing is limited by the sovereign hand of God, but nonetheless, he is, is given uh, uh, such latitude over the life of Job that, that, as we just read there in those testings that came through Satan, um, those trials, by the way, were really for us unimaginable. I can't really wrap my mind around all that he endured and the, the breakneck speed at which they took place and the magnitude of all that he endured, I have a hard time really wrapping my mind around it. I'm sure that Job himself was struggling himself to come to terms with what he was enduring here. And we'll see today how Job responded to the test. How Job responded to the test. And so we'll see the character of Job expressed today. Now we will look at it under these three headings, verses 20 through 22, the stance of Job, the sacrifice and submission of Job, and the sinlessness of Job. The stance of Job, the sacrifice and submission of Job, and the sinlessness of Job. In an article dated June of 2017, entitled, Shaking Your Fist in the Face of God, Dealing with Anger Towards God, the writer speaks of a woman, in particular a Christian woman, who recently told him that She was dealing with anger towards God for the pain and the suffering she endured when her husband died suddenly, leaving her with few resources. She had concluded that she had cruelly been the victim of a marriage of convenience while being otherwise deceived by the deceased. Her unfortunate situation was compounded by the discovery that her children took little interest in her plight. She descended into an abyss of self-pity, 
resentment, and anger toward God. Now, this is very common, by the way, in pop psychology, popular psychology, of this idea of being angry toward God. And not only in pop psychology, but also in what we would say is Christian psychology as well. And really among the church universal that we see, that this is widely accepted that it's okay to be angry with God. David Pallison says concerning this idea of being angry with God, by the way, usually this is in light of very tragic, uh, devastating circumstances that people have endured. David Pallison says this, that enmity against God is nothing less than than an enduring quality of mankind's sinful, fallen state. He's saying here, in essence, that it's not okay. It's not okay to be angry with God. The author goes on to say, despite the experiential mercies and patience of our creator, self-will stands behind a person's anger towards God. It erupts when their power and control over people and situations are disrupted. Underneath, it is motivated by an intrinsic belief that man, not God, must have the last say on whatever happens. Even though the Christian has committed himself to the will of God and to the hardships of, what, of, of living out his faith, Unfortunately, double-mindedness often kicks in when their self-will is threatened. Now, he lays out in this article four kind of excuses or arguments that popular psychology has, has really given to the church as to how it's okay and why it's okay to be angry with God. They say this, first, they lay out this argument that when we experience anger toward God, We should not feel guilty about this since God is the one who created us to have such angry emotions. In other words, God gave me these emotions, so it's right that I have the ability and the right to vent that anger even toward God. Wrong. Secondly, he says, another argument says, we're told by secular press that we're justified in being angry with him since he often could stop bad things from happening but does not does nothing to stop them in other words he could stop them and he didn't do it so therefore i have a right to be angry with god he should have stopped them to preserve me from enduring these difficulties and tragedies third we were were told that expressing anger with god should never be repressed since this would be hypocritical and undermine a mature relationship with God. Fourth, and the fourth argument is presented that we need to forgive God for what he didn't do for us when we were in need. Now, you you hear this right now, and you think in your mind, who thinks this way? I would say that the large majority of Christianity relates to God in this way, that it is okay to be angry with God. That In response to your tra- tragedies, 
your trials and your difficulties, those things that you you are that boggle your mind with regard to 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 life's difficulties, that it is okay to be angry with God. Now, the scriptures tell us something very differently in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry. He says, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Even toward God. In Proverbs 19.3, Solomon writes again, the foolishness of man ruins his way. So who ruins man's way? His own foolishness, it says. But then it goes on, it says, and his heart rages against the Lord. Let me say this as plainly as I can say it. It is not okay to be angry with God. Very plainly. It is not okay to be angry with God. Now, when we see Job's response today, we'll see that this is not Job's response. Job did not have a response of anger toward God. Job had a response of submission and worship to God. Now we see in here again, beginning in verse 20 of Job chapter 1, and considering these things, we see the stance of Job. Job had endured unimaginable suffering. He lost everything that he had. And probably the, the most one of the most, I wouldn't even say the most devastating blow to Job's heart and mind right here was the loss of his ten children. We all, as I said to you last week, we can all understand this. I've lost everything, but at least I have my children. He did not. He lost his children. If you go over into chapter 2, you understand this as husbands and wives. You can, as long as we are together, we can endure anything together. God has given you your wife, husbands, as a helpmeet, and wives, or your husbands, as, your, as a companion for life. And that when you are enduring things together, it is, it's okay. You understand what that, how that feels. You know it's okay. Because you have the camaraderie. You have the, the companionship. But in chapter 2, I would probably say the most devastating blow was his wife turning on him and saying, do you still hold to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. I can't imagine that. The wife of my youth the wife of my youth in league with Satan telling me to do what Satan is trying to coerce me to do. Absolutely devastating to this man, Job. And so we see here Job's response. We begin with the stance of Job in, again, verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, then Job arose. And tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Says that Job arose. 
Now, this indicates that between verse 19 and verse 20, somehow Job ended up on the ground. Now, some say that he was in a seated position, that when he was hearing the news, he was sitting at a table of some sort, and that's him arising. I believe that there's something happened to Job in light of the news that he received. And this is what most commentaries believe as well. Most commentaries believe that after hearing about the escalating calamities and of course the final blow, the news about the death of his ten children, Job collapsed under the weight of his sorrow. He was a man of flesh and honestly to collapse under such devastating news I think is right. It's a right emotional response to that. It's not, it's not an over-exaggeration. It's not a, a hyperbole he's speaking of here. This is a hyper, hyperbolic response here. No, this is a right response to the removal of life and limb and all that God had blessed him with. That is a right response And specifically that last one where it seemed to bring this great man Job to his very knees. It says that he arose. He arose. And tore his robe. He tore his robe. Now, there are two interpretations that people have of this particular passage. portion here where it says he tore his robe. Some believe that potentially this is Job tearing his robe because of blasphemy. Now this would have been uh, acceptable in, in Near Eastern society that for the, for the case, in, in case of blasphemy that, that someone would have torn their robe. We remember this from uh, Matthew chapter 26 when when the high priest spoke of Jesus and said, he said he blasphemed and he rent his robe. That would have been a common practice to tear someone's robe. Now, if that's the case, the interpretation would have been that, and this is what some believe the interpretation is, is that Job tore his robe in light of the fact that after he was tested and tried, that Satan began to test his mind to blaspheme, to do what he had been, he said he would he would accuse Job of doing, of blaspheming the name of God by cursing God to his face, as we read in chapter 1, verse 11. Now, a second interpretation would have been that Job tore his robe out of humility and great sorrow over his affliction. And this is what I believe took place here. I think the context bears this out is that Job is under the weight of his affliction and in mourning and grief over the death of his children he lies on the ground he arises and what can he do he's lost everything I don't think we can really grasp this everything Absolutely everything is lost. 
We can't wrap our minds around this because we have never endured such extensive loss and such escalating calamities that this man, Job, has endured. He tore his robe. This this would have been, again, a common Near Eastern practice. We see the first occasion of the tearing of the robe in light of of mourning and, and tragedy in Genesis chapter 37, where it speaks of Reuben. He tore his robes. When he went back and his, they had thrown his brother Joseph into the cistern and, they, and he returned to, to, to rescue him from the cistern, he was not there. He knew what had happened. Or at least he thought that was the end of his brother Joseph. He knew the consequences of that. And so in mourning and grief over that, it said that he rent his robe. When this was reported to his father, Jacob, in chapter 37, also verse 24 or 34, this was Jacob's response. It says that when Jacob heard the news about Joseph, by the way, that news he heard was a lie. But when he heard that news, the tragedy that that news would have brought to him, it says that he, Jacob tore his clothes and put, on, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. This happened in 2 Samuel chapter 1, when David heard of the fall of Saul and Jonathan, his beloved friend. It says that David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. So this was a common practice, the tearing of the robe, a picture of mourning and deep sorrow. But it says that he tore his robe, and it says he shaved his head. Now, this, this would have been in concert with this. Another part of practice that went along with the tearing of the robes was sometimes they put on sackcloth and ashes, and sometimes there's a removal of hair. Uh, they would shave their beards or pluck out their beards, or they would shave their heads or even pluck out their hair. Now, I don't really have that issue right now to pluck out my hair, My hair has been uh, very short for many, many years, so I don't really have that issue or that temptation to pluck out my hair when I get angry. Now, I know that people, I know people do this. You ever see people get angry and frustrated and they do like this and they begin to, that's a common practice of even a revolting practice or, or a revulsion to something that has happened and they break, they pull their hair. So this is, this would have not been uncommon, but now Now, Job didn't pull his hair out, of course. Job shaved his head. He shaved his head. So he would have have taken a sharp instrument after he was heard that news, rent his robe. He would have shaved his head. Perhaps it was a a sharp knife of some type. He He would have removed the hair from his head. One commentator has said this, tearing the garments, shaving or pulling off the hair of the head, 
throwing dust or ashes on the head and fitting on the ground were acts by which immoderate grief was expressed. Job must have felt the bitterness of anguish when he was told that in addition to the loss of all his property, he was deprived of his ten children by a violent death. This happened in, by the way, in the book of Ezra. When Ezra received the news that that his people, that they had married the Gentiles, they had married the heathens. And in response to this, he says, and when he, I'd heard about this matter, Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, he says, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. It says that he, he shaved his head. This was Job's response to this. It goes on to say that he shaved his head and he worshipped. It says that he worshipped. I don't know about you, but I find it quite mind-boggling. This man was able to worship God in the midst of this. I can't wrap my mind again around the, the difficulty of what he was enduring. But it seems quite mind-boggling that his response was worship. It was worship. Now, when he says that he worshipped, what do we mean he worshipped? Now, um, we think of worship. What is worship, by the way? What does it mean that he worshipped? And what is worship? Well, true worship is based on, as one writer has said, on a right understanding of God's nature and it is a right valuing of God's worth. It's what worship is. If you were to summarize it in kind of a nutshell, it is a right understanding of God's nature, and it is a right valuing of God's worth. We understand this with regard to Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. She says those who worship must worship what? In spirit and in truth. So true worship only takes place in light of objective truth. This is the only time that worship actually takes place. Anything apart from that is not true. And it's not, it's not worship. Now, I went to a wedding yesterday. I had no expectations when I went to the wedding, okay? You say, how did it go? I wasn't let down. You know how you go to a wedding, you have expectations. You want to hear the gospel preached. You want to hear those things. I had no expectations of hearing anything about the gospel. So when I left there, I wasn't disappointed. But I was. <laughs> I, th- I thought there was something about it that just bothered me. It's something that bothered me. Now, there was a matter that was brought up. And the minister 
which I didn't call the person of ministry. I will I digress on that right there. I will not further comment on that. But um, the person who stood there and performed, officiated the ceremony said, um, called the witness of all the people there who were family members. Said, do you, do you pledge in some senses to hold these people accountable for their marriage? Yes, we do. Then the person who was officiating the, the ceremony said, friends, do you, will, you, are you, will you call these people to account for their marriage vows that they're taking? Yes. And then she called upon, I, I revealed it, didn't I? <laughs> she called upon the ancestors of these two to bear witness of and call these people to account for their marriage vows. I could not handle myself. I had a family member come over to me afterwards and say, Sean, we saw your face when she said it. She says, your face told it all. I couldn't contain myself because of the absurdity of that, because that was not true. It was not true of marriage, and it's not true about God either. And so, truth dictates, by the way, when true worship takes place. I think a wedding should be a time of worship. When we go to a wedding, it should be a time of worship. Of course, there were a lot of things that prevented me from being able to do that. And that statement was absolutely worship-busting for me. The scriptures, we read what worship is. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15, it says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks. Now, if you have the ESV, it says that acknowledge his name. The King James Version, or not the King James Version, but uh, there was another version, I can't think of it right now, that gave that same kind of language there. It's an acknowledging of the name of God. And so if we are to worship God, there must be an, an assessing or a coming to truth in those things. And this is what Job did in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, it says, it says Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job, we see here now in verse 21, the sacrifice and the submission of Job. This is Job's worship. How did he express his worship? He expresses worship in his posture toward his circumstances and through his words, through his words. Now, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Now, Job is not saying, unlike the uh, Nicodemus's faulty understanding of what Jesus said when you must be born again. He says, shall I enter again into my mother's womb? This is not what Job is saying here. He's not uh, uh, agreeing with the 
the faulty assessing of Nicodemus when he says here that, and naked I shall return there to, he's not talking about returning to his mother's womb. He's saying here, by the way, he's acknowledging two realities in this passage here. First of all, he's acknowledging the reality that as a human being, being Job, he came into the world with nothing and he will depart with nothing. Pastor Greg just preached on this. He came into this world with nothing. He will depart with nothing. By the way, if you can, we can grasp this. We grasp this truth here. It will help us in times of tragedy and, and loss. If we understand that I came into this world with nothing, I'm going to leave with nothing. I came into this world with no money, I'm going to leave with no money. I came into this world with no children, I'm going to leave with no children. I came into this world with not a wife, I'm going to leave not with a wife, but without a wife. So we can think of anything that God blesses us with. When that day of death comes upon us, we will leave it in this world. It will not go with us. You say, well, what about marriage? Will my wife be there? If she's a believer, she will be there with you in heaven. She won't be your wife there, but she'll be there. So all these things we will leave behind. Everything. You can, you can catalog anything in your mind that comes up that sometimes we hold dearly to. And we, there, listen, we should hold dearly to our children. We need to hold dearly to our families. But at the same time, there should be a looseness there because we will someday render or surrender our grip on those things because they will no longer be ours. We see this in 1 Timothy 6, 7. It says, for we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. In Psalm 49, 16, through 70, the psalmist says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. It says, His glory will not descend after him. In Ecclesiastes 5.15, Solomon says, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry with in his hand. So, two realities. Job is, first of all, acknowledging the reality that a human being, that as a human being, he came into the world with nothing, and he will depart with nothing. Secondly, he's acknowledging the reality that as God, God is sovereign over all things, and he can give or take away as he deems right. And he can, as God deems right. And this is also vital, handling difficulties and trials and tragedy. 
an understanding that, first of all, it has come from God, the hand of a, a sovereign God. But because it came from the hand of a sovereign God, God has a right to take it away. To take it away. This is why he says here, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He's acknowledging the unrivaled sovereignty of God. He's saying, if God gave it to me, if it came from the hands of this good God, this good God can also take it away from me. And we understand as believers, as believers, that when God takes it away from us, it is for our good. He knows our frame. He knows what we need. If God removes something from our lives, whether it be uh, wealth or a, or a family member, a child, a parent, a wife, whatever the case may be, if God removes that from us, it is for our eternal good. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. The Bible teaches us that he will not withhold any good things from those who walk uprightly. And he won't. We understand, we trust those promises. He will not withhold anything, any good thing. And so if God withholds it from us or takes it from us in the case of Job, it's for our eternal good. Another reality that helps us in the time of trial and tragedy In Psalm 115, the psalmist says, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, Job had resigned himself to the will of God. He had submitted to God's will here. Whatever Job's agenda was or his, his desire was, at this point, God had another agenda. God had other desires. And God had another plan that probably was not the plan of Job. We sing a hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. It says, Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup is drinking. May bitter seem to my heart, to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morning new. 
Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. Remember Eli, when the prophecy came to him that his two sons, who were, who were guilty of heinous sin, God sent the prophet to them to tell him, to Eli, to tell him that your sons are going to die. What was Eli's response? He says, the Lord will do what is right. He said, whatever the Lord will do, he, he will do what is right. Noted missionary George Mueller, on the Lord's Day, February 6, 1870, preached the memorial service of his wife Mary, who died of rheumatic fever. They had been married 39 years and four months. And the Lord endowed him with great strength on that day as he was able to, again, preach her, sermon, her, her memorial service. Sister, I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow, I am satisfied with the will of my Heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. Job worshipped. He worshipped. He acknowledged God. Now, Job goes on to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped God by his vindication of his name. Satan's goal was to get Job to, to blaspheme the name of God. Remember in verse 11 it says, But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. This is Satan speaking. He will surely curse you to your face. But what did Job do? It says here that he, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. That was Job's response. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He countered Satan's accusation by blessing God instead of cursing God. In this statement, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job's character is vindicated and simultaneously the character of God is vindicated as well because it is proven that Job did not worship God because of what he had done for him or because of how he had blessed his house. No, Job worshiped God because of who God was and because of who he is. 
because he is worthy of the worship of Job. And so Job rendered to him the worship that was due to his name, not because of the things that God had done for him. Yes, God had blessed him immensely. He was the greatest man in the East at that time, but that wasn't the reason that that wasn't what propelled Job to worship God. No, it was because God was worthy to be worshiped. He was worthy. It says that he blessed the name of the Lord. It said in verse 22, we see here the sinlessness of Job. Through all this, it said, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, when I say sinless here, I mean in the matter here. I'm not saying that Job was sinless. If you, if you go over just to chapter 3, you see some stuff, and Job begins to say things that, uh, what are you saying, Job? What are you thinking about now? I think, honestly, I'm, in some sense, I'm glad to see that. Because I understand that I'm not a perfect man, and you understand you're not perfect either, and that you're going to be, in, you're going to be, be afflicted at times, and you're not going to have a perfect response every time that affliction comes upon you, and you're going to struggle at times. You see the living life of this man, Job, expressed in those chapters from 3 through, through, through 38, 37, of a man who was struggling to wrap his mind around what he was enduring, and yet... There were times when he spoke things that I was, I cringed at some of the things that he was saying. Here, Job is sinless in his response to God and these difficulties that he is enduring. It says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You have the ESV, it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is what he is speaking of here. It's not that he didn't, didn't attribute this to God. No, he did attribute this to God. We see this in, in many places, we, even in the passage we just read. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He, he understood that this was from the hand of God. He didn't, dis, he didn't divorce God's hand from this. By, by no means did he do this. No, he said, this has come from the hand of God. But he didn't charge God with wrong. By the way, he spoke here, in his words, they were sinless. We see over in chapter 2, verse, verse 10, it says that he, uh, or verse 9 or 10, I can't remember. Let me look there quickly. It says here, Verse 10, it says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed, indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. Even after that last mounting tragedy, Job did not sin with his lips. It's a picture, by the way, that Job didn't sin with his lips nor in his heart, okay? This is important. You can refrain outwardly from sinning, but what is your heart saying? What is your heart saying? And we know the scriptures teach us that 
The mouth speaks out of that which what? Which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Pastor Greg preached a sermon in the book of James. I can't remember the year it was, but it was entitled, The Tongue Tells All. The tongue tells all. This is true. Who we are is often revealed in what we say. I would say very frequently what we say or don't say even. But the tongue tells it all. This is a picture of a a blameless man, not a sinless man, in the sense that he, he never did anything wrong. He's blameless in his speech here. He's blameless. We close with this here. Some of you will never have the opportunity to stand in this pulpit and proclaim the matchless worth of your Savior. But God gives each of us a platform in our affliction to proclaim who he is. This is a chancel up here. Not a stage. It's a chancel. Stage is for what? Performers and actors. This is a chancel. This is a holy desk right here. We call this the holy desk. You may never have an opportunity to to speak from this place right here. But God has given you, and he gives you a holy desk, a chancel in your tragedy. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may speak the truth of who God is. You may declare the sovereign hand of God in your affliction and that this God is good and right and perfect and whatever he does is right. And so see your affliction as a God-given opportunity to worship God and to proclaim the excellencies of God. Don't see your tragedy and your trials as simply, I am at the the, the whim of blind fate, that there is some kind, somehow undirected difficulties that you are going through. No, these are coming from the hand of God. And if you see your tragedy, your, your trials and your difficulty as an opportunity that God is giving to you to worship him, to acknowledge who he is and to proclaim who he is. May God give us all the grace in the midst of our suffering to lay hold of the truth that this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. Think about think of it that way. This is an opportunity that God has given to me to proclaim his excellencies to the world around me, to worship him, to acknowledge 
that what is happening to me is coming from the hand of a sovereignly good and wise God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, please use this words of the book of Job to corral our hearts to make us see that we do not suffer in vain. We do not go through trials in vain. Lord, you are using those things to exalt your name, to worship you, to proclaim the excellencies of our God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray that you would grant us Lord, the grace to do this, the strength even. In Christ's name, amen.